Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Catholic Gentleman. We know that God formed Adam out of dust. There's something within us as men that want to better understand and to be able to control the earth and our surroundings. We're really excited to be joined with a survivalist today. Stay tuned. Hey everyone, thanks again for joining uh, myself, John Heinen, and Sam Guzman, your host on The Catholic Gentleman, for another episode today. If you haven't already, please click that bell button, click that thumb button, all of those things on YouTube help us uh, get farther. If you are listening to us on a podcast of your choice, please be sure to subscribe so that you can get every one of these episodes. And finally, we're so grateful for all of our donors. They really make this possible. If you are so inspired to join us in our mission here at The Catholic Gentleman to help us continue to put our images, our memes further and farther, to help us get this podcast out further and farther, to help men become holy, really be grateful if you had checked out our Patreon page. You can see it in the show notes, or you can go to patreon.com slash Catholic Gentleman. We're looking for anything you can give, $5, $10 a month, $25 a month. Any of those things are just so helpful for us in our ministry. So um, thanks for being here. Well, today we're very happy to be joined by Will Hintz, who is uh, a lot of things. It's kind of hard to to quantify you, Will, but uh, he brings together 10 years of Catholic youth ministry experience with his background as a soldier, a bushcraft instructor, and a wilderness expedition leader. So you're kind of like, Will is kind of like a real life Rambo, if you've ever seen the movie. Uh, He's a dynamic speaker who draws on his wealth of wilderness survival experiences to bring home his ministry beyond the wild's message of spiritual survival. Uh, And he also happens to have a really cool British accent. Uh, Will, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So uh, I'm just fascinated by your background, kind of bringing together this world of uh, Catholic uh, ministry, youth ministry, and um, a lot of other things that you do for the church, Um, but really a clear heart for the faith but also just this kind of rugged outdoorsman, you know, you teach people to survive in the wilderness with uh, very few tools um, and just kind of feel at home in the outdoors. I think it's fantastic. Uh, But just tell us how these two worlds kind of came together. How did you kind of get involved in, in both youth ministry as well as bushcraft? Yeah. Yeah. So um, as my parents were massively into anything outdoorsy, um, but as a teenager, I started to get into wild camping from the age of uh, 14. I think I was heading off by myself into the forest where I wasn't even allowed to camp or make fires, um, but kind of actually learning how to get fires going and uh, camp out and stuff. And so I really, really loved that world. Um, that went on all through my teenage years. And when I was 18 years old, um, I left England and went traveling and ended up it was meant to I, I was kind of feeling totally lost, to be honest. And it was meant to be maybe a year out or something. And it turned into about four years overseas, spread out over five years. So I'd just take off. And when I when I took off, I had absolutely no money. Um, So everywhere I went, I was just uh, hitchhiking, um, sleeping rough, just sleeping under an old tarp. Um, You know, I I might have enough money to get a flight somewhere. And then once I was there, I was pretty much out of money or, or hop on the ferry across into Europe. I altogether had um, about four years overseas traveling. It was uh, two years going around Europe, um, a year in New Zealand, uh, six months in Canada, three months in America, and uh, a bit of time in Scandinavia as well. And um, I was absolutely addicted to traveling. And uh, I, to be honest, I didn't think I'd ever stop. Um, but I learned really quickly that sleeping rough in the towns was really, really dangerous. And I'd get, I'd just, I just got some unpleasant uh, experiences of sleeping rough in the towns and then I I thought well if I just get out of the towns and get into the forests um, I can get a fire going I can keep warm I can cook my food Um, I've got like that the security build up my morale dry my clothing and kit and stuff like that and so I started doing it and it kind of all all this stuff I've been learning as a teenager um, it became actually a way of life and stuff like that and then 
that then was almost like a key to unlocking the wilderness. So when I had my year in New Zealand, um, I was 19 by this point. Again, just hitchhiking around everywhere. Um, sometimes even like jumping freight trains and stuff like that. Mm. Probably yearning for adventure, but it gave me this this uh, knowledge of, of bushcraft or whatever people want to call it. Gave me this confidence to head out into the wild, and I started going on wilderness expeditions, like deep deep into the mountains. I just fell in love with it. Um, anyway, fast forward. Uh, years really um, probably about 10 years uh, until I settled down and had a family and became um, a youth worker uh, for the church and we were running some really really good stuff and like reaching out to people and getting quite good response in terms of numbers and the content was all really solid Um, but I could never reach out to teenage guys like I'd invite them but there was like some sort of a block and I think that was through kind of misconceptions about what the church actually is because certainly when I was growing up the church was something um, very soft and fluffy. That was the impression I got of it at school and in my parish. And uh, I thought I had to be soft and fluffy too. And I'm not soft and fluffy. Um, I am for my kids, but I'm not particularly <laughs> soft and fluffy. And so I didn't really think the church was my spiritual home. And I thought well, maybe these teenage guys are in that sort of position. And I thought, well, I'm going on all these wilderness expeditions still. And after settling down, I started to get into the the finer things like um you know, learning how to make fire with friction by rubbing sticks together and bow drills. And I got much more into the world of kind of uh, trapping and skinning and stuff like that. And I thought, what if I fused together um, like a bushcraft course with a retreat? What if I fused together wilderness survival with spiritual survival um, to teach kids how their faith could survive and thrive through high school, through young adult life, through university and stuff? And I was excited by it. So I thought, well, maybe they'll be excited by it. So I went to the, I was working for a diocese, the Diocese of Portsmouth, that thankfully had a solid bishop. And I kind of proposed this idea. And they're like, yeah, yeah. Like they were a bit taken back, but we checked with the insurers. And they're like, yeah, you go for it. And um, anyway, I, I did it. And uh, it just went really, really well. Um, the only bad feedback was from the girls who were furious that they didn't get a course of their own because it was geared just for teenage guys. Um, so the next year, me and my wife sat down, me and my wife uh, met through the church, asked her out um, after adoration, and it kind of just built, it was all kind of built on that foundation. Um, so me and her sat down and we rewrote the whole uh, course and sort of made it about um, one third sort of fusing wilderness survival with spiritual survival and two thirds on Catholic womanhood and the renewal of womanhood. And then she delivered that with some of her university chaplaincy friends. Uh, that went well. And uh, a few years later, after that, um, we got in some trouble. Uh, a Catholic vegan group called Catholic Concern for Animals, our name and shame them. Um, they tried to get us <laughs> shut down with like a campaign of letters to the bishops. Um, and eventually, everyone was trying to change parts of this course. And I was like, Do you know what? This is probably the best thing I've ever created. This felt like my gift to the church. Um, and so I said, I'm not going to change it. And the bishop kind of respected me for standing my ground. And I said, I'm going to take it independent. I'm going to offer it outside of the diocese. I'm going to offer it to individuals. Um, and then a few years after that, it became a registered charity and ended up with thick skin bishops ready uh, to deal with hate mail and stuff who stepped in to be patrons and stuff like that. And then it kind of built from there. It probably, it feels like it kind of peaked in 20, just before COVID with being able to work full time on the project. And now it's kind of been a bit rocky and uh, stuff's been questionable. I've got four kids, but um I've got a son whose health is, um, he needs a lot of care. And so that's thrown out a few kind of uh, bookings for courses and things like that. Um, but yeah, if it was just before it went, I say big, but it's nothing like Catholic gentleman big. Um, but I kind of put everything into God's hands with a consecration of beyond the world to the sacred heart of Jesus. And it just felt like God just took it and wanted to do something with it. And it's, yeah, it's had a, it's had an amazing impact. I've been really humbled by, um, by some of the fruits that God has allowed me to see through this ministry, which just seemed like a crazy analogy that I kind of took too far when I thought about fusing wilderness survival and spiritual survival. I just uh, wow. just kind of kept going beyond what I thought was appropriate, but people seem to really like it. So yeah, that's beyond the wild. Wow, that's so great. Uh, that's This is exciting. Everything you're, you're mentioning just uh, really triggers me. I had a couple of years in my life when college where I was backpacking on a regular um, uh, currents and up in New England here in America. And I always wanted to figure out how to do like half these things. And, and so I'd start watching man versus wild, right. Another, um, um, British, uh, Bear Grylls, you know, uh, yeah. going through. And I remember though, as 
exciting as it was to watch him, it was also kind of very sublime in the sense that if I was ever dropped in that situation, me having watched him for 30 minutes is not going to help me yeah, survive yeah. in this situation. And so, uh, yeah, especially, yeah, exactly. That's right. And uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, and so anyways, I want to go back though. And when you were traveling all over the world, was your Catholic faith uh, pivotal or were you having a, uh, uh, you know, uh, for lack of a better phrase, crisis of faith, or were you moving away from the faith or, or where I didn't quite uh, follow where, where your Catholic faith was um, um, in prior to your traveling around the world and even during that uh, time period? Yeah, so at that time, I was really falling in love with the faith, falling in love with the church. Um, but like, like my travels, it was a journey. As a teenager, um, I wasn't too keen on being Catholic, and I had certain hang-ups with certain parts of church teaching and things like that. And uh, when I, I know uh, one of your guys uh, mentioned Medjugorje a while back, and I don't know if it's yay or nay. Like The jury's out for me on Medjugorje. But my mum sent me to Medjugorje. My mum had got into the faith when I was... I'm not sure, but I know when I was born and baptized and we were going to, we started going to church just once a month, just so I could get into a Catholic primary school. Mm. And then as I got a little bit older, something started to spark in my mum and my mum kind of got me going to church, got me going to confession and things like that. And uh, yeah, um, when I was a teenager, I was starting to lose my way. Not that I ever necessarily had my way, Um, but mum sent me on this pilgrimage to Medjugorje but the key thing was, it wasn't the place, it wasn't anything miraculous or anything else, but I decided I'd make a full confession. And I'd always, my mum had kind of forced me to go to confession, but there were certain sins that I was just like, man, the priest does not need or want to know these sins, so I'm not <laughs> going to be saying them to him. Um, but anyway, I decided that I would just, because I'd almost gone for a bit of a holiday, I thought I need to do one thing for my mum's sake. She didn't have much money, she paid me for me to go. But I've got to do something for her so that I can come back and say, yeah, I did this. Um, so I decided I'd make a go to confession and make a full confession. So I went through an examination of conscience for the first time. And I was like, oh, man. And the list was just growing and growing and growing. And some stuff like, anyway, hit the most embarrassing sins, bang in the middle of my list for the priest and tried to read past them <laughs> as quickly as possible. And he just kept, he, this priest, he just kept coming back to the sins that I was most wanting to dodge. And he really kind of just wanted to, get in there and kind of really get get to the heart of everything and halfway through um that list became more than just a list of things to get off of my chest um that list it like as, as I was saying it I found myself crying and it, they weren't tears of self-pity like they were they weren't selfish tears they were tears for how I'd um I was, I was seeing how much I'd hurt my people my family um you know friends everyone through these sins and most of all how I'd hurt God and how far I had fallen from God because um, in a Catholic primary school, I'd, I'd said the little prayers and things like that. And I'd met, never made some conscious decision to turn away. But I'd realized just by step by step, God just wasn't in my life at all. And I, I wasn't making any time for him. And uh, oh, there was just so much grace in that confession. First full confession. It felt like my first real confession. I know um, in the scriptures, uh, it's, um, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. That's right. And I, looking back on it now, I think it was almost you could flip it around the other way and say maybe the not pure in heart, the impure will not be able to see God. Lots of my sins that I brought forwards in that confession for the first time were against purity. And it yeah. felt like like scales falling away from my eyes. God renewed, like restored some like all that purity, that that identity as a child of God, all these things that I kind of didn't even fully understand because I didn't have the foundation for it. Um, but I had this real sense. Um, but God was calling me that, you know, he wanted me not to anything spectacular, but just to be his son. And that really, really changed my whole, whole identity. And uh, when I came back to the UK, the other big thing I found there was Eucharistic adoration um, and daily mass. And I realized I wanted I wanted this relationship with God. I, I wanted to be his son and I was being called to be his son. So all I had to do was yeah. respond. Um, yeah. So that was when I was about 15 years old. So when I left, um, I left in a little bit of a mess. I'd been desperate to join the Royal Marines all my life. And whilst doing uh, like college, like sort of 16 to 18 year old education, I was trying to do the Royal Marine Reserves. Um, so you kind of uh, be commando trained, uh, get your Green Beret at the end of it. And then my plan was to jump into uh, like the regular life. Um, and during my exams in school, 
Um, I, was, I was meant to be sitting the exams, but the Marines, there was an opportunity to go away to the Ukraine for two and a half weeks on a training course. And I was like, yeah, like, definitely I'm there. Um, but at the same time, I knew the school would say no. And the Marines would respect that decision of the school because I was still part time. So I didn't tell the school, uh, went away to the Ukraine, um, had an amazing time, but felt way too young to be going into that sort of uh, world that young. Um, especially with stuff kicking off in Afghanistan and everything. Mm. Um, so came back and felt like I wasn't going to be going straight into the Marines so young. And also the school didn't want to know, <laughs> but they were furious. Um, so I was pretty much sent on my way from school. And that's what started the traveling, like a period of being totally lost. But the one thing I really wanted to discover was my faith. Um, so just before going traveling, um, at the peak of feeling lost, someone pulled out of a random trip like a sort of road trip down um to france to go and visit a catholic community out there uh, the community of the beatitudes mm. and uh i got a phone call saying did i want to come i have to be ready for like the next night and then there's a free place over um you know on the ferry and, and to drive down through normandy um so went there and just fell in love with it fell in love with that lifestyle of um just the silence the lexio divina the eucharistic adoration and wasn't really considering a vocation, but something inside me was just crying out to know God at such a deeper level. Um, so I said, yeah, I'll, I'll go. And then I, I messaged them. I messaged the community about a week later. We were only over there for a few days. Um, but I messaged the community and I said, might it be OK to come back and stay for a period of discernment? Um, so my first trip over, my first time hitchhiking, I think, was um, I just turned 18. And then I got the ferry across for about 10 pounds. Uh, like. I don't know, maybe $13 or something to get over to France and then just started hitchhiking. And uh, like a day later, a couple of days later, I arrived at this, this old monastery um, where there were, and, and just ended up being there. And so my first six months in Europe were actually spent in this Catholic community. And back then, I think phones were around. Yeah. <laughs> I, I left my phone, I left everything behind and I just wanted to be cut off from everything. I just wanted, I, I wanted like a whole new life based in this identity that I was, I'd kind of discovered and just wanted to go so much deeper in with my faith. And then all the way through the travels, it was just like the faith was just woven through everything. Um, so weirdly, even after six months in a Catholic community and then more time, uh, the three months in America came after that. And uh, then I came back to, to the UK and then there was a, a year over in New Zealand. But it wasn't until New Zealand that I realised that I'd, I'd really kind of fallen in love with Jesus um, before and the sacraments weirdly before falling in love with the church and I still had some hang-ups about the church and I met a couple of guys in New Zealand that just made me see the church in a totally different way and that was like jumping off like another layer of the adventure of faith wow. um, was just discovering the church as the bride of Christ and I remember being a bit lost and hearing people speak about things like titles like bride of Christ and stuff like that and I remember just feeling like I wasn't I didn't really have that in my heart like I had that love for God, but the way these guys spoke about the church, they were so madly in love with the church as well as our Lord. And I remember taking it to prayer uh, on a on a hike, actually, and saying this prayer, saying, Lord God, let me see the church as you see the church. And again, it was like stuff just fell away from my eyes because all of this, all of the hang ups I had, all of, you know, the stuff we see in the church, even more so today, because more stuff is exposed by the media and it, it needs to be you know it needs to all come out but it's like I could see past all of that to what God was seeing with his bride you know on on the day of my wedding no doubt my wife might have had a little spot or something like that when she came into the church lifted her veil but all I could see was beauty and all I had in my heart for her was love and it felt like God this is all I didn't see this at the time and I wouldn't have been able to articulate it like this at the time it's like I realized that is how God sees the church that is how God sees his bride despite all the blemishes and stuff which he desperately wants to heal and which should never be ignored. And I'm glad stuff is being brought up to the surface at the moment. I'm glad the media, though they're hell-bent on destroying the church, no doubt, but I'm glad they are, I'm sure they're doing part of God's work and bringing lots of stuff out there. But God just has this love and just sees nothing but beauty uh, through the saints, through his mother, things like that, when he looks at his bride, which is the church. Um, so the whole thing was like this journey. Um, yeah, yeah. Very great. Wow. I'm so grateful that you shared that. Yeah, uh, it's, it's very powerful how the Holy Spirit is moving you throughout that whole process. Wow. 
Yeah, we all we all we all need to discover that that beauty in the church um, that lies beneath the surface. It's kind of like the the treasure buried in the field in the gospels, you know, where it's covered with a lot of dirt. Um uh, can be kind of hard yeah, to see yeah. sometimes, yeah. but it's there, it's there. You just gotta dig a little bit <laughs> and mm. uh, pray for that, pray for that renewed sight. Yeah, it's a real yeah. grace, I think, to be able to see that. Certainly yeah. for me, like it wasn't through any act of my own, it's just something just suddenly clicked and i'm sure it was just the uh, the desire and also just just a very humble prayer of just you know i was seeing something else that other people were living and i was like god like i i didn't even kind of want what well, i didn't kind of want their joy or anything else i just wanted to see the church as god saw it because i was sure they were right and i was wrong hmm. um yes yeah, so and has that stayed with you say it again is that has that stayed with you yeah, yeah, that, that really changed the trajectory of everything because I think I was kind of wanting to go off like a bit of a one-man thing, you know, still still like madly in love with the sacraments. But for some reason, I didn't want to kind of unite everything that I wanted to do to bring. I, I think part of me, every time I got the chance to speak to someone about my faith, you know, I'd love to speak to them about our Lord. But I, I wouldn't really speak about the church and stuff. But certainly it changed the trajectory in terms of, I saw the two things going together, uh, like that God never called us to live out our life with him in isolation. It's madness to think that a God who created man kind of calls us all together, kind of wants to call us all together in like billions of isolated people for all the centuries and millennium. And I suddenly stuff just clicked with the church. This is how he calls us to live with him. This is how he calls us to live out that love. And so then my desire to love God, I realized that to live that out, I just had to live that out in the heart of the church, even to the point of giving uh, whatever humble service I could give to the church, um, even something as crazy as beyond the world. I just knew it had to be for God. I had to kind of live that for him. Um, yeah, so it, it changed everything. And it, and it still is there today. Um, yeah. Very much so. Uh, yeah, well, there's this word that keeps coming up in, in a lot of the things that you're saying. And, and it's an adventure. And uh and uh, I think no matter how domesticated of a modern man you are today, whether you're a software developer or a lawyer or someone who just kind of uh, is completely insulated from the wilder aspects of life, every man that I've ever known uh, feels a desire for wildness and for adventure. Like it's just it's just in our heart somewhere. And and even if we never actually like live that out very much, we still find it. I mean, that's why these shows, these TV shows, survivalist shows and things like that are so popular because it's touching something deep within us. So I'm wondering, you know, you're a family man now. You've got children, you've got a wife, you've got responsibilities, and you've also lived this very adventuresome life. How do you how do you balance those two? How do you bring how do you incorporate the sense of adventure kind of into your day to day, but also in your spiritual life? Um, yeah, could you just could you tell us a little bit about that? Um, so in the day to day, there's probably a constant battle between like me and my wife in terms of how how many times I can get out into the forest and how many fires I can light <laughs> and she comes home and I've brought home some other new fungus that I want to use for fire lighting or something. So she helps to balance me out. She before we got married, she was kind of coming wild camping, uh, taking me to like punk rock um, gigs and stuff. And uh, like she was, tended to be really into motorbikes, coming on motorbike rallies and motorbike tours and stuff. As soon as we got married, all of that stuff stopped. Like I haven't managed to get her wild camping one time since getting married. Um, so she's really kind of my rock in the family and she kind of keeps me grounded. And I, I don't know, like in terms of, I want to be out there like going on some expedition or something like that. And I've probably put that a little bit, uh, make that sound a bit bad, but she definitely keeps me balanced in terms of family stuff. And I still feel like I get on loads of adventures. And uh, my two girls who are seven and nine years old, they're absolutely crazy for stuff. Um, we haven't got any kind of deep, deep wilderness uh, like you guys have in America, mm. uh, which I, you know, I really miss, absolutely love that world. But I can still easily kind of get them out to the forest and stuff like that and kind of bring home things for them. So they've both I think uh, my eldest, she um, she was skinning deer with me when she was sort of four years old, like helping to pull the skins off. And she skinned her first squirrel by herself when she was five. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I brought home like nine partridges for, for them to kind of pluck and gut and stuff. 
um yeah so they, they're good as gold and i still managed to get my adventures and beyond the wild uh, in some ways is just my little way to kind of keep getting on little adventures <laughs> and things like that um in terms of the faith even in the middle of those biggest expeditions that i was doing um i was still seeing my faith as my biggest adventure and that sounds uh, cheesy, but um, it just really was. I was just discovering this whole new world. And I was, as a kid, I was always so fascinated. Like at school, I was always distracted, kind of looking out of the window and just wanting to be out there, wanting to explore what was kind of beyond the horizon. And, uh, and, and I got to when I went traveling and there was still something in me kind of hungering for more. And, uh, and I realized that it was this adventure of faith, that that was the ultimate adventure that I was created for. Um, and discovering that felt phenomenal. And that's why we came up with the title uh, Beyond the Wild for this ministry, because it was, I was always desperate to get into the wilderness all the way through school, just desperate to get out there. And then it became about kind of what was beyond the wild. There was an even bigger adventure that I was being called to. Yeah. Um, and that was the faith. That was a journey of faith. And uh, I remember as a kid, when I was seeing the church as something soft and fluffy, um, nothing could have been further from the truth. I mean, it's, it's borderline abuse some of the hymns that I was learning when I was a kid. Yeah. Like they were just yeah. so, so weak. Like, like they would have looked weak if they were written by Kermit the Frog sort of thing. And to be singing them in church. And when I left and I started to read about the lives of the saints, and I was like, man, there were Viking saints. There were saints who stood against armies. There were saints who stood against empires alone. And I was like, this is something phenomenal. And, and even when I looked at something as simple as the architect, architecture of some of the um, churches that I was seeing around the world, I was like, there is something so strong and phenomenal here and everything, just like the mountains in the wild, which I've heard described as God's first cathedral, point you straight up towards God. Yeah. We have that yearning to get yeah. to the top of the mountain, and then it points us straight up towards God. And then I was seeing these beautiful, beautiful churches, uh, much nicer than what I'd grown up with, and everything was pointing me towards God. And those two um, uh, sort of adventures just went hand in hand. Um, yeah, yeah, greatest adventure. And that's what I wanted to get across to the kids. When I was a teenager, the other thing I thought, through uh, an unhealthy obsession with The Simpsons, I, lo I don't know if they're still making them. Um, but I, I loved The Simpsons growing up. I shouldn't have, but I did. Um, I was convinced like, that every Christian, like the height of Christianity, you were kind of called to be Ned Flanders, basically. And I was like, I don't want to be Ned Flanders. <laughs> You know, so that really put me off the faith and nothing could be further from the truth. Like there's that line that I, gets quoted so much, but it's so beautiful that um, when our Lord said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And that isn't have it to the full as Ned Flanders. That's have it to the full as you. Like God wants you to be fully alive. God wants you to be fully who you, who you were created to be as his child. And uh, yeah, I just kind of threw myself into that and, and everything else fell away. The fears of Ned Flanders, the fear of having to be soft and fluffy. I, I don't want to be with all these axes. It's a bit of a cliche, but there's also a danger of um, macho Catholicism, like where yeah. you're like, I think uh, Sam, your friend, uh, who's the psychologist, he spoke a little bit about that. Yes. And uh, is it Bishop, Bishop Olmsted's Into the Breach? Um, yeah. There's one part of that that really hits me where he speaks about counterfeits of masculinity, which is yeah. stuff like James Bond, who can never actually yeah. form a bond. Um, and then he speaks about shadows of masculinity and he speaks about like bodybuilding and stuff like that, which I've never really been into. Um, but straight away, I thought that the axes, the fire, the skinning and gutting the knives, all of that could be like what well, is one of I don't, these are good things, but it's like one of those shadows of masculinity. And when we bring people into the wild, we do do all that stuff. We do the skinning and everything else, a shelter building, friction, firelighting, give them knives and stuff. But at the heart of that is an encounter with our Lord. And then they realize, like, well, through, through the catechesis and through those times of prayer, we have adoration in the wild, uh, confession, mass every day in the wild. Um, but they realize that when you see this man on the cross uh, giving his like, last drop of blood for love of his children, um, that all these other like shadows of masculinity just fall away. Uh, so now I happily embrace like my nose and axes and skinning and stuff like that because I know that that only true model of masculinity is through our Lord dying for love of his children on the cross. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. You're getting, you're, you're getting me like truly inspired over here. Uh, oh, thanks, man. Yeah. Thanks I, for getting I, me into this stuff as well because I'm terrible at technology. <laughs> Everyone around me. <laughs> Knows I'm really, really bad at technology. It came from years of refusing to ever have a phone. Then I got a phone, then refused to have a smartphone for years. 
finally got a smartphone and then got sucked into you know thing after thing and I had to look at this week when you messaged me I was like do we have Instagram I had to look up Instagram and apparently we do have Instagram um but I didn't even realize that I had to look up the tagline for it I realized uh, I've done about one post every year, which stopped about three years ago. Um, but yeah, so anyway, uh, my phobia of technology is is absolute. It's everywhere. And when I got your invitation, I was like, man, I better um, actually figure out what this is. And I had an email from ages ago like, offering three months of free subscription to Spotify or something. So I was like, I'll do that because I know they're on Spotify. Um, so I jump on there and I started listening to the podcast and now it's become like a daily thing for me. If I'm doing a workout, uh-huh. or if I'm working outside in the garage, I just stick on headphones and have one of the podcasts rolling. And it's really, really good. I think it's going to be the future for me, like with commuting and things like that. I'm just going to be rolling the podcast because normally I like to sit down and have an actual book. I don't even like, I don't even like yeah. uh, Kindles and things like that because I want a physical book to yeah. like get old and smelly and hand on to my kids. Um and to be able to scribble all over, you can probably do that with Kindles now, but I, I don't have one, so I don't know how. Um, but yeah, I've realized actually I, there's something to be tapped into through social media, through um, just, I mean, go to the ends of the earth it, for evangelization. The ends of the earth now is like people are, all, there's so many people on social media and stuff like that. And it, it can be so negative, but there's also such an opportunity um, to spread the gospel there. So thank you for having me on and sparking this love of podcasts now. Oh, how really exciting. Into. Well, thank you, Will. That means a lot. I appreciate that. And uh, I was uh, unaware, but very blessed with what you're doing and and being able to invite you here. And you're right. Exactly. Like Sam and I talk about this all the time. I think both of us uh, kind of, if I'm being honest, despise Facebook and, and these different, you know, uh, social media. But we also understand that, as I like to say, it's the Roman roads today, right? And the, and uh, the apostles use the Roman roads to evangelize Christ's message. And, and that's what we have to a degree of responsibility and an obligation. However, we also, like you were, you know, getting at, have an obligation and responsibility to God and to ourselves not to become addicted or controlled by these things. And that's, that's that, that difficulty. And, you know, it's been, it's been going around in the blog spheres and, and um, vlog spheres and stuff like that with Matt Frad and, and even Sam and stuff like this, you know, of, of putting things in place to remove technology from our lives. And that's good. And there are appropriate balances that we all have to play and we have to work towards, you know, with our own individual um, relationship with, with God and development and holiness. And so I want to go back a little bit and, and talk about um, how long have you been married and you have four kids now. And I know that um, there's been a big shift and I want to make sure that our listeners are able to pray for you and pray for your son. And so if you wouldn't mind sharing just a little bit about that, um, because your faith life and your journey is, is still moving forward. It's not stagnant. It's not, uh, you know, achieved or accomplished and, and, you know, and, you know, you're looking back on 60 years, you know, you're, you're, you're in the thick of it right now. And I'd love you to talk just briefly about that before we can shift to some more survivalist and, uh, and wilderness items. Yeah, sure. Um, so I've been married for 10 years and um, I met my wife uh, 13 years ago um, at an event run by Youth 2000. So it's perpetual Eucharistic adoration throughout it. And we were both emceeing and I kind of really liked her and uh, thought I better not say anything because it will totally distract us when we're trying to speak on a microphone because neither of us were natural public speakers in front mm-hmm. of lots of people. Um, so anyway, waited till the last night that we'd finished emceeing together, then asked her if she'd like to do a holy hour. And then at the end of the holy hour, I told her I liked her, made a idiot of myself. And she kept me waiting about a month before she actually said yes to going out wow. with me. And three years later, we got married and been married 10 years now. Um, baby number one came along uh, super, super quickly. Um, there was a little, <laughs> like my friends all laughed. Most of my friends from school, they're all like, you know, don't really practice any faith apart from a couple of them now. Back then, I don't think any of them were. And the baby came along nine months to the day of the wedding. So they all thought I was mad for like waiting for marriage and stuff like that. And then when the baby came along that quickly, it was just bizarre for them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, baby number one came along quickly. Uh, we had a miscarriage the following year after that, which was absolutely like beyond heartbreaking. That was in, yeah. in my whole life, which has seen quite a lot of um, bereavements. That was probably the thing that impacted my faith the hardest. That was uh, really, really hard to move forwards from. Yeah. Um, 
especially when working as a Catholic youth minister, you know, you're like, what, what do you do? Like, you can't give what you haven't got. And at that point, I kind of felt like I couldn't even pray and move forward. Um, then uh, God blessed us um, a year after that with our second daughter. Um, so uh, Nicola's our eldest, she's now nine. Then there's Joanna, who's seven. Um, William is five. I'll come back to him in a minute because yeah. he's the thing that's really changed our lives. And then we've got um, Lucy, who's three. And we've actually got another little one on the way as well. Hey. Uh, so please, please pray for that little baby. I've got to pray that my family aren't watching this because we haven't given told family yet. And it's, okay. it's early days. And we we did uh, we lost uh, a little baby that we named Joseph at the start of this year as well. Um, mm. So we've kind of been a bit too jumpy, a bit too nervous to tell anyone. But every day we're just praying with that little baby. So if anyone hears this and wants to pray for us and pray for that child, uh, that yes. would mean the world. We certainly will. Um, thank you. Uh, so William, who's five now, he came along and about six uh, weeks after um, he was born, he seemed like uh, a perfectly healthy and happy child. And then suddenly uh, we noticed that his eyes were kind of, he had something called nystagmus where the eyes were kind of flickering um, back and forth and he couldn't hold his eyes still. And um, we knew that that was, could be like a telltale sign of a neurological condition. And uh, it's something that we kind of knew about because my wife, uh, that she has a condition that runs through her family called uh, Pelizaeus Merchbacker disease or PMD for short. Um, you need something for short when it's a name that complicated. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we, we phoned her mum and she said, yeah, th these are the first signs of it. And there's a good chance that he's got PMD. Uh, so we, we went to the geneticists and stuff and we kind of said, this is what you need to look for specifically. And we got our son's diagnosis back. And uh, everything suddenly changed. Like it, it wasn't like I, I knew life was going to have a lot of challenges, but it wasn't like it wasn't like being hit by a tidal wave. A because we kind of knew my wife's family, and she has two brothers with this condition. Mm. Um, but B because he's just so beautiful <laughs> and so giggly mm. and smiley and things like that. So we were just over the moon with him still. But we knew very much that life was going to change. That. I kind of wouldn't be going out on all of these adventures that a big part of my life would become um, caring for my son. Um, so with my son's condition, um, you have uh, the brain sends and receives all of the messages down the nerves and the nerves are coated in a myelin sheath. Mm -hmm. um, and that sheath is needed to transmit the messages to and from. Um, and with his condition, he never develops that sheath. He never develops myelin. And that also affects the development of the brain as well. Um, so in terms of what that means, he's sort of as floppy as a newborn. Um, if he, you know, he can't hold up his own head without our help. He can't uh, sit up in a wheelchair. He has to have lots of um, chest support in the wheelchair. He has to have supports down the sides and head support and things. So the care he needs is absolutely uh, through the roof. Yeah. And uh, I, I was actually, um, I, I don't know, I was, I was really kind of, I think the biggest thing that hit me wasn't, struggling with my son's condition it was asking am i enough ha like have i got enough to give this child what he needs and i was i was afraid i was afraid of all of my own weaknesses um after the first miscarriage with like the impact on the faith and stuff like all sorts of old weaknesses from when i was a teenager had been absolutely brought to the surface out of nowhere as well and i suddenly realized i wasn't at all where i thought i was on this spiritual journey um and i suddenly thought like like do i do i have it and and God, it became like a massive journey of trust. More than anything, it was about trust. It was about trusting in God's grace. It was about turning to him every single day. And it was about uniting all of those um, struggles, trying to like sanctify and find holiness through all of that work. Because I love doing it. But if I wasn't touching base with God, if I wasn't kind of giving God that, that work with my hands as an act of love for him, uh, then I really wasn't sanctifying that work. Um, so that became a key thing. And now my son... He's like the heart of the family. And I always think that ultimately my mission as a husband and a father is to get my family into heaven. That's um, but I feel like God kind of saw my trajectory, certainly for me. And it's almost like it just missed the mark, like a little bit of a dip, like when you're shooting long range of certain calibers or something. And I feel like God gave me my son. And it's almost like your son is going to get you guys here without any kind of presumption or anything else. It felt like our our vocation to love and care for my son in that way was the thing that was going to get me to heaven if I fully accepted that calling and it would be the thing that would bring all of my family to heaven as well because my wife the reason I fell in love with her it, she is just so beautiful and from such a beautiful family and they've largely they've become so beautiful because they've lived their lives caring for these 
Uh, she's got two brothers with this condition and then a, she's one of eight. The younger sister has um, quite severe Down syndrome as well. So her whole life was kind of just service and gentleness and everything else. And that's what I fell in love with. Those things were probably the things I was lacking most, you know, in terms of my life of virtue and everything else. There was so much selfishness and uh, and pride and stuff like this and, and, and sometimes like frustrations and angers and stuff like that. And it felt like God was showing me through my son this new way to, to sort of rediscover gentleness, to rediscover service, to rediscover humility. Um, yeah, yeah. So he's been a phenomenal blessing um, in our lives and in the lives of the children. Like my, my girls are so good with them. He's turning them into little saints, even at their really young age. So uh, he has to be hoisted out of his wheelchair and up onto his bed. Um, and then he lies there for like stretch time. And often they're small enough that we can pop one of them in his bed alongside him just to sit with him and read him stories and stroke his hair and things like that. And they're just they're just becoming tiny little saints um, wow. already at the ages of like nine and uh, seven and stuff. The three year old's a bit more of a handful. She's definitely a little <laughs> saint, but it's a bit too fiery to leave her in my son's bed. Three's a tough age. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. Um, yeah yeah so I, I guess that's a good overview of where we're at um with with marriage with family and then with with the curveball that God threw in with our son but um yeah it's, it's just beautiful it just took that that trust I'd say more than anything that's still the journey that I'm on when I go to confession um when I dig at those sins to find out where the root is it's almost always a lack of trust in God um so one of my my main prayers at the moment is is to kneel before the image of our Lord the divine mercy image and just say the words I trust in you Mm. and just to repeat those words over and over again or if i if i can get to adoration in the week to say those words jesus i trust in you um yeah. that's definitely the next stage of this journey the next stage of the adventure is trust yeah. and it's like the hard part of the journey like you get on top of the mountains but then sometimes you have to come off the mountains and you're going through like the wild going through like some bog or the rain's thumping it down or it's cold and stuff sometimes that journey is hard um Sometimes it doesn't feel like you're making much progress, but certainly the next stage of that adventure in faith, I think, is that is is trust for me. That's where God is calling me, just to have more and more trust in him and his will and his love for my family. A part of me, I used to live completely on providence. And then as soon as I got married, I never worried about anything. Like when I was hitchhiking, I didn't even know where I'd end up at the end of the day. I'd jump onto freight trains with no idea where they were heading out into the wild. Um, and and I like a part of it, I always thought I was really trusting in providence, but possibly another part of me just didn't really care because I had a very messed up family situation back home. I didn't really have anything to live for. I didn't have any possessions or it was just like me and my rucksack. Um, so a part of me just didn't really care what happened, I think. And it wasn't actually trust in providence. It was just not going on. And when I got married and had a family, it's like I suddenly started worrying about loads of things that I hadn't worried about before. And I almost took away that trust from God and almost started thinking, well, God, you can provide for me, but can you provide for my kids? Yeah. And almost started thinking, can I do a better job of providing than you can? And, and all sorts of struggles. Only looking back now do I realize how, uh, how the devil managed to weave those things in so, so subtly. Like it all looked as like virtue trying to provide for my family. But really, um, the devil was kind of setting this long-term trap for me to take away my trust from God and to try and put that trust in myself. And I'm useless, like... <laughs> I'm the last person people should trust. In the wild, I'm good, but like in terms of my love for my family versus God the Father's love for my family, there's no competition. And when I take away that trust, I think I just momentarily lose sight of that. Yeah, he's a master snarer. The devil is. I, I love to set snares for animals, but the devil, he knows how it's done. Yeah, yeah, the accuser for sure. Wow, thank you. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that, and we'll keep you and your family in our prayers. Um, um, yeah, in particular to all these things that you mentioned, and I appreciate you um, uh, informing yeah. us because I don't. Very few people know uh, that uh, that disease. So, yeah, and yeah. I, uh, I think too what you're describing it rings true for me too as well. I mean, I think men in general struggle with trust and surrendering themselves and surrendering their will and things like that. I mean, we pride ourselves on growing more competent growing more confident, like being able to do things like, uh, oh, I want to be able to fix this thing or fix my car or, you know, be able to survive in the wilderness. That'd be like amazing for any man to be able to say, like, I can survive in the wilderness with, you know, just an ax or something, you know, that that would be uh, um, high on a lot of men's uh, list of desires is to be competent. Like, we don't want to be weak. We don't want to be um 
unable to do things or unable to uh, determine our own fate. Um, so I, you know, I, what you're saying rings true. And I would just say, what would you say to men who maybe they've climbed to the top of the heap? Maybe they're already kind of achieved a lot in life and the um, prospect of that not being the case or, or being able to let go is terrifying to them. Like, what would you say to a man who's got it all as far as power and prestige and he's accomplished a lot? What would you say to a guy like that? Um, I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm always reluctant to kind of give advice because I'm so conscious of my own uh, weakness and, and where I am on, on the journey and stuff. But the thing that's always struck me is just this knowledge of, of what are we really going to take with us? And what am I going to care about on my deathbed? And it's certainly not going to be any legacy I've built in terms of um, money or businesses or, or property and anything like that. It's not an issue for me because it's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> but what's going to really be with me is my family and my children and my God and my faith. And uh, I just want that to be number one. And um, in terms of letting go and making that number one, you know, like whenever if you get given a gift, um, like, you're kind of blown up if it's a really awesome gift you're blown away then you want to give something back um that's as phenomenal and so i would just say spend more and more time looking at our lord um on the crucifix um the crucifix more than anywhere else is where god shows us his love um but what we see in that love uh what we see on on that cross is like a drop in the ocean of his love for us and it is so much deeper like it, he would have died i think saint alphonsus Liguori says like our Lord died for us one time, like each of us individually. Yeah. He died for us all, but he had enough love in his heart to have died for each one of us like a, a billion, billion times. Yeah, he, he died once. He had enough love to die over and over again. He hung on the cross for three hours. He had enough love in his heart to hang on that cross for all eternity, for love of us. Um, so I'd say look at the cross where we see God's love um, and then look at the Eucharist where we receive God's love. So if we see if we see God's love through on the cross, uh, on the crucifix, um, we receive God's love in the Eucharist because that's where, like, the cross wasn't even enough to satisfy his love. Um, it was only through the Eucharist that he found a way to be completely united with us. And, and everything in our Lord's life, even the incarnation, down to him kind of um, growing up in humility amongst the poor, uh, like a hard-working life, um, everything and all of his teachings, it's all about drawing close to us. Even going through temptations, all about drawing close to us. And that's at the heart of God is that love and that love desiring union. Like if you love someone, you want to be with them. You want to be one with them. Um, and on the, we see that ultimately on, on the cross, but it was in the Eucharist that he found this way to satisfy his love because it was only in the Eucharist that he found a way to become fully one with us, to fully unite himself with us, body and blood, to give him, to give us his body, blood, soul, and divinity, everything that he is and find a way to unite himself completely to us, to our lives. There's that beautiful line in John chapter six, where Jesus says, um, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I live in that person. So I'd say go to him on the cross by adoring the Eucharist, go to him in the blessed sacrament uh, by coming to know him, receiving him as reverently and as worthily as possible um, and just falling more in love with him. And, and then you receive that gift. That's what I was saying about the gifts. Um, and then once you've received a gift that big, you're just like, man, what am I going to give? And then when we receive our Lord in the Eucharist, you're like, well, he's given me his body, blood, soul, and divinity. I can't give him any divinity, but he gave me everything he is and he held absolutely nothing back. So I want to give him absolutely everything I am and hold nothing back. Um, and that's a constant struggle. Like no one ever reaches that point. If ever you think someone's reached that point, you're wrong. If ever mm -hmm. they think that they've reached that point, they're horrendously misguided. Um, there's this constant battle to just give ourselves completely to the Lord. And uh, in terms of trusting and maybe jumping off the edge, um, just look at the cross. And someone who did that for you, um, he's never going to let you down. Like that's someone who you can put your trust in completely more than anyone else on this planet, whether you've been harmed by friends, by a father, by family, anything like that. Just spend more and more time looking at that cross and just go to him every single day. Like the most simple prayer we pray with our kids, the little ones before they can even speak is just to kiss the crucifix. And I hope that's their last prayer. I hope every single day through their life, they just fall more and more in love with our Lord on the cross. Who's just, he's always there for them. I'm not always going to be there for them. I'm going to die. I'm going to mess up like a hundred times, 
but our Lord, he will always be there holding, holding them. Um, so yeah, and, and that's, that's where I describe it for my little kids. Um, but even if you're some high flying businessman or uh, like if you're the center of, of the world or something like that, you could be like the, the biggest celebrity in the world, but go to our Lord in the cross, go to our Lord in the Eucharist. And when you realize something so big could become so small for us, then it puts everything in perspective. And not only do you want to become small for our Lord, like we have to be, um, but also uh, you just know that you can just throw yourself into his arms with complete trust and abandonment. Um, yeah, so I'd say the, the cross and the Eucharist are the two places to head if I was struggling. I realized I said I wasn't going to give any advice, but that was like nonstop advice. <laughs> that was inspiring. Yeah. No, I really appreciate that. Well, we do have uh, a little bit of time left. And so I think it's an opportune time for us to turn to your um, your wall of, a, you know, of, oh, yeah. um, of, of fun yeah, stuff. I and yesterday for you guys. Yeah, I love it. And I, I don't know what a few things are on it, I'll admit, but I'll also say, like, let's just start with where, what you are doing, it not only is inspiring, but it's also like something that I wish every diocese was doing, right? Like there was, you know, uh, some sort of way for um, a, a, and I know that there's troops of St. George and there's, you know, these trail life and these sort of things that are are, are trying to do it, but something very unique with what you are doing and in true survivalist uh, tactics. And, um, and so where do those of us who don't have that opportunity, where do we begin? Where, what is essential uh, to, to start with? Because I know that I'm not going to be able to grab fungus that I know can start a fire right away, but maybe I know I should always have a knife in my car or something along those lines for, you know, whenever the situation might call for it. So I want to hear from you though, kind of like, where do we get started? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll say, um, the best thing to do is just to get out there and start doing things. Um, we live like YouTube is a phenomenal resource. Um, mm. There's lots of uh, wilderness living and bushcraft and survivalist forums, uh, which are phenomenal resources. Um, but that, I, I've been doing quite a lot of work lately uh, just because I, I need sort of spare time to, stuff just to fit in uh, for other bushcraft companies. And you can tell when someone comes along and all of their knowledge has come from the forums, all of their knowledge comes from YouTube and they yeah. haven't actually practiced anything. So we have to go beyond the theory. Um, and you have to practice something over and over again and ideally practice it in challenging conditions. So when it's tipping it down with rain or really, really cold and it's like, oh man, I've got to try and light a friction fire in this. Um, don't start with friction fires, by the way, they're really yeah. hard. Um, <laughs> okay. I'd, say, I'd say YouTube is a good place to get started. Um, when I, on all my travels, when I was younger, through like my late teens and early 20s, um, all that time, I didn't know how to light fires by friction. I didn't know how to use those fire steels with the ferrocene rods and all the sparks yeah. and everything else. Um, I just had a couple of lighters, you know, one for backup, and they never failed me. Now I wouldn't head into the wilderness without my ferro rod and without, like, decent knives and stuff. But we can get bogged down in the theory. So for years, those lighters served me properly. For years, I just had a, a simple, cheap stainless steel knife, and it did everything I needed. And I got onto YouTube and these forums, and suddenly it's like, oh, man, I need a carbon steel knife. Like, what have I been doing? And why don't I know how to make a, like, a fire through a spark? And I almost became totally bogged down in, I need a carbon steel knife. And actually, like, I'd already done all of the stuff out in the wild. Like, you, you don't need all of this kit and stuff. You just have to get out there. And so I'd say, um, I'd say always keep it really fun. Like, definitely do the really hard days in moderation. But I'd say start off by, like, buying a tarp. And it could just be, like, like a... Uh, a dirt cheap tarp from like the local uh is it home depot you guys have over yeah there? home depot lowe's harbor <laughs> freight yep that's all i was using when i was a teenager and a lighter you know you can just buy cheap stuff and get out there but start doing it and then once you once you kind of uh, then you're living it straight away like it's the same thing with the faith that we've got to go beyond the theory in everything we do it can't just be just words it can't be um just reading about things we have to live it and it's the same thing with with uh the bushcraft and the wilderness living you have to get out there and then i'll say uh, the next thing to um, uh, to really get stuck into would be a fire steel, um, which are those ferrocene rods. So I think I uh, like my fire tend to do the best ones over here. They're a Swedish brand. Um, but buy a ferrocene rod. Try to spend maybe like 5 to $10 or something. Don't buy a dirt cheap one because the sparks just won't be hot enough. And that mm. will take your fire lighting up to the next level. Um, the only stuff I think that you could really do with having someone guide you through, which I'd actually like pay money to to go on a course for is probably the friction fire lighting because it's so complicated. If you're just trying to use YouTube, it's just so much easier watching someone do it and then having them kind of 
show you where your balance needs to be, how tight you have to lock that hand in, how hard you have to press down on the spindle to be able to make the friction, make the smoke come, but not press so hard that it locks up, um, yeah. things like that. So friction fire lighting is way down the line, but I'd say have someone teach you that. Foraging, definitely have someone teach foraging. you that. Foraging is so dangerous. If you're in a survival situation, do everything you can to avoid foraging. Like that needs to be a last resort unless you really, really know your stuff. Because um, yeah. when you're foraging, especially in a survival situation, it's even worse. Um, it's so easy to make mistakes. And in a survival situation, um, like your mind wants it to become something that's edible. Like you're so hungry. And so you look at it and you're like, that is definitely that. Um, so you're more likely to get it wrong because your mind is so desperate for it to be yeah. something that it's not. But then combine that with you have no ex access to expert knowledge. You don't have the books with you. You don't have like the internet or someone to phone or to send a picture to one of these forums. And then you're out of reach of medical help. So put foraging way down the line. Be more <laughs> careful with that one. Okay. Fire lighting, uh, definitely water purification, shelter building, um, stuff like that. Like depending on where you live, like really learn how to do like winter sub-zero camping, uh, things like that. How, you know, that there's so much you can do when you know how to build shelters in the world. So from tarps, once you're comfortable with that, I'd be looking at some proper shelter building, learning how to build tripod uh, shelters. If you need a small little um, sort of A-frame, like almost like a rat's mm -hmm. nest type thing where you just end up snuggled in, that's the sort of shelter you'd go for. Um, if, if the main way you decide it is, can you get a fire going? If you can't get a fire going, you want it to be as small as possible and you want it to almost be completely crammed in like just a nest of leaves that you kind of burrow your way into because the only heat you've got is what's in your body. So you want to mm -hmm. trap your body heat. If you can get a fire going, then you'd be looking at like a lean-to shelter. So that'd yeah. be the next shelter to start working on and learning how to make a fire. In a real survival situation, like if you're soaking, need to dry kit, and it's dropping towards zero, um, then you wouldn't be thinking about a little fire as well. You'd be going for like a full body-length fire, like using whole logs so it's running from your feet all the way to your head building walls to reflect that heat back to you. There's just such a world. And it's similar to the faith in that the more you discover um, with wilderness living, the more you discover there is. So when I've started working for these other bushcraft companies, I, I teach the friction firelighting, uh, the skinning and shelter building, stuff like that. But when I see what they can make out of birch bark, these containers that they make and, and everything else and how, how they can make cordage and, and weave these phenomenal things, I, I'm just, the more you learn, the more you realize there is to know um so it's, it's that is in itself Wonderful. is an awesome world to get into but at the heart of it just keep that uh keep living it keep practicing all those skills over and over and over again so fun and in terms yeah. of what to shove in the car um like the kind of prepping mentality yeah it all comes down to water uh well for me i always just think water fire shelter and food um on top of that you might want to think about uh first aid as well um yeah, so in the car, I'd have uh, water, like a fresh water supply. Shelter is, is your warmth. It can be as as simple and as sensible as just taking a spare jacket if it's somewhere cold um, or a tarp or somewhere to get you out of the midday sun if it's somewhere hot where you might break down. Um, so we've got the water, the shelter, uh, the warmth, the fire. Um, yeah, don't take a don't take a fire steel, a ferrocia mod. If you don't know how to use it, take a lighter yeah. and take yeah. a fire lighter with it as well. Like sometimes we kind of, fall in love with all of this i've got my furrow rod on here the only this is what i have always with me in the wild is uh like the knife a fire steel yeah, yeah and then some natural tinder this is a natural tinder called uh fatwood and uh or yeah i think it's called fatwood over in the states as well um but this is awesome stuff you can collect it out in the wild and uh, it's totally waterproof as well you can even submerge this so if i'm in a survival situation these things, plus a steel water bottle, which I don't have because it's indoors, are the things that I always have on my belt. So that even if I lose my pack, I know I've got what I need to survive. I know I've got a good solid knife. I got my fire steel and some tinder. And a steel water bottle gives me a way to cook food, a way to um a way to like boil up and purify water. All of that stuff. So I'd say keep those things on you. If you're in a car, then chuck a tarp in as well. Yeah. Even a sleeping bag, you're doing a big journey. You guys have different levels of wilderness to what we have over in the UK. Mm -hmm. I'm probably getting a little bit soft now because I've been in the UK for too long. <laughs> um, so we're never far from someone. You never. It's almost impossible to lose sight of a road in this country, unfortunately. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm grateful for that, and I appreciate that. Um, uh, well, good, Sam. Any any other questions, or do we want to just say, well, where where can we find more information about you? Um, so I will say the Instagram one first before I forget it because it's the one I had to look okay, up. Yeah. Don't don't have big hopes for Instagram. 
So I just, yeah. I just don't like it. I just need, I need to get on there and knuckle down or find someone else that can run my social yeah. media. Um, but I think the tagline is beyond the wild underscore. Um, the website is beyondthewild.org and on Facebook, we're facebook.com slash beyond the wild. Um, so nice and easy there. And we're working on uh, producing uh, because more and more I'm getting pulled away from running these courses. So we want to take the course content and make it freely available to people all over the world, uh, totally freely. Uh, so we're working on making a post-confirmation video series and we're kind of working on the funding stage of that at the moment. But we want to take the entirety of the course content and make it freely available in a sort of survival simulation thing. So that sort of Bear Grylls, Ed Stafford world where you kind of yeah. go out into the world, we'll film it and have the catechesis. And I should say the catechesis side of it, um, first of all, on these Beyond the Wild courses, it starts with the will to live. Um, you need to love life if you're going to survive. And survival doesn't make any sense unless you love life. And it's the same thing with the spiritual life. It doesn't make spiritual survival doesn't make any sense unless someone loves life, loves that spiritual life, recognizing what that life is that they've entered into through their baptism, that they receive and they live each moment through the Holy Spirit. First of all, we need to get them to have that. And that all comes through that encounter. But once they've got that, then you recognize like what it is in the world that threatens your life. Um, so in the wild, obviously, it's like hypothermia and extreme cold, dehydration and extreme heat. Um, there could be uh, starvation. Um, yeah, all, all of those things. And, and one of the key things to do in a survival situation is just to be able to calm down, sit down if you need to and count to whatever you need to to calm down and then look at the world around you. Look at the things which are threatening your life and then look at the elements of wilderness survival, which is water, fire, shelter and food. And then figure out which of these have I got. If it's tipping it down with rain, you don't need to worry about water. Um, you know, it might be like shelter and warmth, or you might be in the middle of the desert thinking, right, I need to prioritize shelter and then water, um, things like that. And it's the same thing in the spiritual world. There are things in our world which will threaten and even seek to destroy our faith. Um, and it's about learning how to survive spiritually. So on these courses, we teach them hands-on. It's always beyond the theory, always hands-on learning. Um, how to pure, how to use like water, fire, shelter, and food to survive, and then we teach them. We tie water with prayer, fire with God's mercy, shelter with the church, and food with the Eucharist. And we're just mm. giving them these four elements of spiritual survival and teaching them like prayer is just given to us this living water of prayer, this living water of the Holy Spirit every single day to tap into that living water. We need that like we need oxygen. Like if you take that away, there's just nothing left. Um, the mm. fire of God's mercy. The similarities between hypothermia and spiritual hypothermia are mind-blowing. When I, 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 I suffered with hypothermia when I was 19 years old in the southern Alps of New Zealand, uh, which is where they filmed the, the Misty Mountains, if you've seen Lord of the Rings of the yeah. Hobbit, which I'm sure yeah. you guys have. Um, so I ended up, I was on a, one of my first expeditions into proper mountains in the winter. It was the middle of winter and I ended up um, slipping in. There were lots of river crossings and ended up slipping into a... a mountain brook trying to jump over at its narrowest but also its deepest point and this water is just so cold it's just melted snow running down the mountain underneath sheets of ice and it went in like up to almost up to my chest and by night time we didn't make make our way to the huts and i was suffering badly with hypothermia i, I was even hallucinating things um and the stages of hypothermia, like it starts off with that shock, that cold, and I was angry with myself and, and cracked on. But then that cold, as you use up energy and as the temperature drops, starts to get deeper and deeper inside of you. And hypothermia starts to set in and you start like not making progress. You don't want to move forwards anymore. You become tired, disorientated, and confused. And it's the same thing with spiritual hypothermia. We sin and that we get that spiritual cold, that shock, and we realize that we're cold. But as that coldness, if we don't do anything about it, if we don't go to the fire of God's mercy through the sacrament of confession, that cold starts to get in deeper and deeper into our hearts. And uh, we end up with the spiritual um, like lethargy, like where we don't care yeah. about making progress on the spiritual journey. We end up with spiritual confusion. Uh, the ultimate spiritual confusion is where we think something isn't even a sin anymore. And where we think we know better to the church on things like morality or something like that. And it goes deeper and deeper in. And one of the last stages of hypothermia is where you just don't even feel cold anymore. The uncontrollable shivering, which sets in at the start of hypothermia, eventually that stops and you don't feel cold. Um, and that's, that's a sign that you're pretty much almost dead. You're on death's door because the next stage of hypothermia is like dilated pupils, weak or no heartbeat, um, and then death. Uh, and it's the same thing with spiritual hypothermia. The final stage of hypothermia is where that spiritual shivering stops, where we don't feel the coldness of sin anymore. And we, we don't even kind of believe in God's love for us. Um, we don't believe in his mercy for us. So we've got the water of prayer, the fire of God's mercy, mercy through confession, 
the shelter and the church. We've already definitely been through that one. And then our spiritual food, which is the Eucharist. And we've been through that one. Those are the four things we need for our faith to not just to survive, but to thrive um, through whatever world we're thrown into, wherever we're thrown into. Even more so than in the wilderness, God will bring us through if we hold on to those four things. Amen. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. That is beautiful. And uh, we'll stay tuned and see when that course is posted uh, and we'll, we'll help spread the word. Sure. Will. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Well, Will, just thank, thank you, you so, so very much. Yeah, Sam, go. Sorry. No, no. Thank you for being with us. I mean, it's been an absolute inspiration to just kind of hear your your love for our Lord and for the faith and for the church and how you have brought those together that your love for the wild and the wilderness um, and also your love for, for the faith and you're helping others to discover those, those treasures as well. So thanks so much for being with us, Will. And uh, we'll be sure to put in the show notes, everything that uh, you share with us about how to find you and uh, God bless you. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, God bless you, Will. Yeah, you're welcome. And it's just been a blessing. I've been inspired as well. And I look forward to getting this out and then to staying connected with you and, and helping you out uh, further uh, within uh, our ministry and yours. So as we end every episode, be a man, be a saint. God bless.